when water and sand gurgled from the ground near the 50-foot levee shielding Kaskaskia, Illinois from the surging Mississippi River, it carried an ominous warning. The river was swollen and swift in the summer of 1993. Heavy winter snowfall was closely followed by intense spring rains and frequent summer thunderstorms, bulging the Missouri and Mississippi rivers to record highs. Floods inundated communities across the Midwest. Sitting about 80 miles south of St. Louis lay Kaskaskia, an important 17th century colonial outpost that later served as the first capital of Illinois. Much of the original town was destroyed during an 1881 flood, which also shifted the Mississippi River's channel, turning Kaskaskia into an island and into a small sliver of Illinois that now sat on the Missouri side of the river. By 1993, the island held fertile farmland and about 150 residents. On the evening of July 21st, someone noticed the sand boil, which occurs when high water on one side of a levee creates enough pressure to displace sediment underneath the levee and eject it on the low water side. It meant the ground under the levee was being eroded and the structure's integrity was in danger. Emergency officials and residents raced to build a ring of sandbags around the boil, trying to create a pool of water that would alleviate the pressure, stop the erosion, and save the levee. About two dozen people labored throughout the night as women, children, and elderly residents were evacuated. A military helicopter flew overhead, shining a spotlight to illuminate the struggle on the ground. It wasn't enough. Around 10 a.m., a 60-foot section of the levee burst, and the mighty Mississippi rushed onto the island and engulfed its three villages and thousands of acres of farmland. People scrambled to save belongings and rescue animals. A helicopter flew from home to home, making sure no one was stranded, and a barge pulled hogs out of the rising water. The remaining sections of the levee were quickly covered with sofas, refrigerators, tractors, pickup trucks, and anything else that could be salvaged. Within hours, the 15,000-acre island was almost entirely filled by water more than nine feet deep. It would never be the same. When a census was taken seven years later, only 36 residents had returned to call the island home. Caused by the pressure from rising water levels, sand boils appear when water bubbles out of a hole in the ground surrounded by a mound of displaced soil. They are a visible symptom of internal erosion, which causes 46% of levee failures. If these sand boils are not treated immediately, they will grow and displace more sediment, increasing the risk of a catastrophic breach. The current treatment uses sandbags or barrels to construct a ring around the boil that allows the spewing water to pull reducing the pressure and slowing or stopping the erosion. It could take six to eight hours for a four-person team to control a medium-sized sand boil, requiring hundreds of heavy sandbags. It is dangerous work that also exposes laborers to a potential levee failure. Days after the Kaskaskia breach, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers employee Harold Smith was swept away by floodwaters when another levee failed near the sand boil he was investigating. Smith was found nearly a mile away about an hour later, thankfully suffering only cuts and bruises. 
To simplify this cumbersome process, Arctic researchers have developed a special lightweight filter that can be inserted into a sand boil to alleviate the pressure and stop erosion. A single person could install it in about 15 minutes, eliminating the need for sandbags. After years of development and laboratory testing, these filters have been sent to U.S. Army Corps of Engineers districts, which will employ them in future flood events and provide data to enhance their design. Complete with tools to install and replacement parts, these sand boil filter kits cost about $200 and are reusable, making them an inexpensive and effective tool to fight sand boils, protect levees, and prevent flooding. I'm Chris Kiefer, and with Megan Saxton, this is The Power of Erdic. Our guest today is Samantha Luker, a research geologist with Erdic's Geotechnical and Structures Laboratory. We will talk with Samantha about Erdic's sand boil filter kits and how they will save lives and money and safeguard communities along our nation's rivers. Samantha, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is a pleasure. Let's start off with a basic question. What is a sand boil and why is it bad? So a sand boil is the surficial expression of a form of internal erosion called backward erosion piping. This is a type of erosion that occurs in the sandy foundation underlying a levee structure. And the reason it's bad is if that sand boil is allowed to progress, or basically if the erosion within the system is allowed to progress, it can create a continuous pipe from the downstream to the upstream side of the levee. And that can cause a rapid failure of the system over time. So the boil itself is just the surficial expression. Surficial. It's what you see on the surface. So it's kind of, it's what you can see Mm -hmm. that's happening at the top to tell you that something's going on deep underneath that's bad. For us, it's an indicator. It tells us, oh, we've got a problem. The sand boil itself is more actually a sign for us. So it actually helps us in a lot of ways, showing us we have an issue. We do not want that erosion to progress to the point of failure. So it's a symptom of a problem, not the problem itself. Yes, the problem is the actual erosion that's occurring internally within the system. And the idea, I guess, the erosion, it has to do with pressure. I mean, is that kind Mm -hmm. of essentially what this is all about? When you have a high water event, when you have more water on one side of the levee, that's creating more pressure on the dry side that's causing these processes to take place? Yes. So whenever you have a high water level for the river, you have low water on the downstream toe of the dam. And that causes a gradient across the system. That's an increase in pressure within that system. And if that gradient is allowed to get high enough, that's when the erosion will begin. And that's when it can progress backwards through that system to the upstream riverside. And once again, if it reaches that riverside, then you can have a rapid degradation of that system. And again, what's happening, the pressure is so high, it's moving the ground underneath. Then you're losing the stability of the system. Yeah, so you'll have detaching of grains, basically, and those grains moving downstream. As they're removed, you have a void space that's being created. And that void space is the problem. That's Mm -hmm. the erosion that we're worried about. How common, how prevalent can they be? One, is it really kind of limited to high water events? And then when you have such an event, you see lots of sand boils, one sand boil? Yeah, so traditionally, whenever we do have high water events, that's when you'll mostly see them become active. They're pretty prevalent up and down the Mississippi River Valley. And there are certain districts that have to deal with large quantities of these boils. You can have 20 boils in one location, for instance. Up in uh, St. Louis, I know back in the 1993 flood, that's when they actually had a significant number of boils occur all within small areas. Mm -hmm. Of course, they've done relief wells and things like that to try to reduce the pressure within the system. But yes, you can have a significant number of these. But you can also just have one large boil as well. So it's highly variable dependent on the geology in the area. Sure. 
What is the current practice for addressing these same foils? So currently, most districts will do sandbagging. So they'll basically create a sandbag circle dike around the boil. What that does is allow for the water level within those sandbags to increase, thereby reducing the gradient or reducing the pressure across the system. When that pressure is reduced, that can slow or stop that rate of erosion. Problem with this, it's very time and labor intensive. Each sandbag weighs 35 pounds, you know. Mm Uh, You typically require a team of at least four people, if not more, to do a sandbag dike around a medium-sized boil, for instance, and that's going to take many hours to do, plus you have to have all the materials to do it. And how many sandbags, roughly? So 35 pounds each for a medium-sized sand boil, how many sandbags, roughly, are you talking about? So it can take 200, 300 bags for, if you're trying to get up to a height of around three to four feet. The height that you go to is dependent on the boil, dependent on the flow, the pressure, because you have to get high enough to stop that erosion. But if you go too high, you can actually have the boil appear in another location. So you're constantly having to monitor and make adjustments. Mm -hmm. So how do the sand boil filter kits work? How can they stop erosion? How do they improve on the current practice? The sand boil filter basically acts the same way that the sandbags do in that we're trying to increase the water level at that exit location, decreasing the gradient across the system and stopping that rate of erosion. The difference between the filter and the sandbagging is that the filter is very lightweight. It can be installed by a single individual and it can be installed in under 15 minutes. So it's a lot faster, it's cheaper, and it's less labor intensive. Uh, You also have less people that are in that downstream area. Sure. So the filter is basically a cone shape of a filter fabric material with PVC tube through the center of it. And that PVC tube has holes cut at different locations, basically at around six inch intervals up the PVC tube. And we have uh, couplings that can seal off each one of those holes. So by doing that, we can place the filter within the boil sealing the system, and then the water is forced up through the PVC tube to whatever predetermined height we've chosen. So before, we would have to bag up to, let's say, three feet. That's a lot of sandbags. However, if you use the filter, all you have to do is measure, okay, this will be the three-foot height, and I'm going to unscrew that particular hub, remove it. That's where the water will exit, place it within the boil. And once you do that, you can look, monitor the system, make sure that you're seeing a reduction in the grains coming out of that system, which means that the erosion is starting to come under control. If you don't see that, you can make adjustments. So all you have to do is slide one of the other couplings either up or down, and you can adjust the height to whatever you need in the field. So when you say the adjustment, really what you're monitoring for is that it's just water that's flowing out. If water's flowing out, clear water, you're okay. If you're still getting more dirt, that means the pressure is still high. Yes. So um, we want to maintain that water flow because that acts as a relief valve for the system. Mm -hmm. Very similar to how a relief well operates. Sure. So we don't want to prevent the flow of water. If we prevent the flow of water, the boil will merely appear in another location. The pressure is still there. Exactly. So we want to maintain that flow. But what we want to stop is the removal of the grains from the foundation Mm -hmm. layer. So we want to reduce that gradient so the grains can't move and thereby stabilizing the system. Sure. A portability, I, I guess, is a big thing, too. I mean, yes. you know, you talk about sandbags, 35-pound mm-hmm. bags, 200, 300 sandbags. 
you're having to get enough sand, locally produced sand, whatever, to, to fill them. Yes. Truck them in wherever you need them. I mean, this, you can put it all, I think I saw it just in a basic bucket, like a bucket you get from a hardware store. Yeah, so the filter itself, because it's about a six-foot-long PVC tube, that one you can't put inside the bucket, but all the additional kit fits within a five-gallon bucket. The filter, basically, the whole kit was designed to fit in the back of a pickup truck super easy. So district employees can put multiple in the back of their pickup truck, take them around to these locations. So if you have five boils in one location, you just take five filters out. You actually only need maybe one or two of the five-gallon buckets because the main thing that's within the kit that's in those buckets is the pea gravel that's needed to help create that seal within the filter. And we always put extra in that. And then all the tools required to make modifications on site because we wanted to make sure the district employees would have everything that they needed and they wouldn't be saying, oh, I wish I had this. Sure, you know, we, sure. we gave them all the measuring tapes, all the extra tools, all that type of stuff. We wanted to make things as simple as possible. Following up on that point, it being that much more portable, it being that much more quicker to install it, we talked again during one of these events, you could have lots of boils that pop up around the levee, the ability to fight them all quicker. I mean, the ability to address one of these, I guess, in 15 minutes rather than half a day means that you can more quickly address all of these. Yes. So that's the main concept is that we want to be able to try to control that erosion as quick as possible. We also want to get people out of the downstream area as quick as possible during a flood event because these areas can become unstable. We don't want workers down in the downstream tow if we can avoid it. And so being able to have where two people can go out, because of course we only ever go out in teams of two normally, we want to make sure everybody's safe, but a single individual can go down, place the filter, and then uh, leave from that area. And we would like to keep that for safety's sake and for being able to flood fight as quickly as possible. Yeah, we talked about it in the intro in terms of the danger. There was the interest story about Kaskaskia, but just a few days later, was it Boys Brule. Boys Brule, there was a Corps of Engineer employee who was addressing Sam Boyles. The levee broke right near where he was. Yeah, so his truck was parked on the levee. Basically, most of these levees have service roads on top of them, and that's what they use to be able to monitor some of these boils. They were monitoring this area because they knew there was a chance that it had an issue. They heard the same sound that they had heard at Kaskaskia, and so his truck happened to be parked right basically in the location where the levee broke. It pulled his truck in because it was right on the back of, I believe, where his truck was. And he was uh, swept downstream. Luckily, he was able to get out of his truck. He actually escaped, I believe, through the window because he couldn't get the door open. And uh, he was able to pull himself up on the side about, I think, a half mile or so downstream. I know his truck was found about a mile downstream. And it was found upside down with the cabin basically smushed. So um, he got very lucky to get out of that situation. But yeah, we, we would like to keep people in, <laughs> in yeah, safer so, places if we can. So again, by being able to do these quicker, you're both helping the levees out because they're relieved from this internal erosion much more quickly, decreasing the risk of a breach. And then also you're getting people out of harm's way that yeah. much quicker. Sure. And that was the overall goal was to help the districts with their flood fighting because that is such a big part of our infrastructure and something that they have to tackle with on a yearly basis. And anything we can do to make things easier for the districts, we want to make sure we do. So outside of keeping people safe, which is obviously a huge piece of this, let's go a little bit deeper into why this matters. The Corps of Engineers has over 13,500 miles of levee system within our infrastructure. 
And so internal erosion counts for about 46% of all failures that occur. And then you have to think about the costs, not only of keeping people safe who are actively flood fighting, but the economic cost of a levee breach, the cost of life that can occur from a levee breach. And also then you have to deal with reconstruction. There's effects that happen years down the line. Kaskaskia actually is another example of that. Not nearly as many of the people that lived in that area were able to move back to it after that breach occurred. Internal erosion will always be a problem. Anything we can do to make the flood fighting of that easier is something that we should be doing. Is this something, too, with changing climates and changing weather patterns and and so forth? Potential to see more stresses on our rivers, more heavy rain events, higher rivers might be fighting sand boils more frequently, and this kind of allows you to do it more efficiently? Yeah. So in general, climate changes that we're seeing Things are just becoming more unpredictable in general. So any extra tool that we can have in our tool belt to help us deal with these issues is always going to be something we need to have because you don't know. I mean, we could have a couple of very dry years. Mm -hmm. We've had that kind of recently. Sure. But we've also had some really bad storms and some really bad snowpack in certain areas. You're seeing flooding in areas that we're not typically seeing it. So there Mm -hmm. could be more areas that are dealing with boils that aren't used to it. Sure. So we want to be prepared for all situations. How did this effort come to be? Uh, How did you come up with the idea for this? So this started as part of the Damon Levy seepage program within our branch. And Isaac Stevens and Bryant Robbins were the two initial uh, researchers that actually came up with this idea. And they were basically trying to identify solutions for the district today because we do a lot of lab research to try to better understand backward erosion piping. We're trying to work on numerical models for risk assessment, but that stuff is things that can help the district down the line. But what about today? Their initial goal was, okay, what can we do to be able to help these districts out as soon as possible? So they basically just thought about what's the current technique and is there a way that we can improve this? So it started off as just a cone-shaped filter Of course, with that initial design, they realized they weren't really reducing the pressure in the system. So there were modifications that were made over time. So there's a lot of development of this. We built a sand boil generator within our lab to be able to actually test all of this stuff out. Uh, It's a lot of fun because normally when you say, hey, have you ever seen a sand boil? Most people are sitting there going, um, no, what exactly is that? And it's like, okay, here, let's show everybody. So we can start that up and actually just run it in the lab and show people what it looks like. But it also allowed us to actually test these devices. So we were able to make multiple different prototypes, find out what actually worked the best. We tried multiple different filter fabrics and finally settled on this design that we have now. The device was actually patented back in 2019 by Bryant and Isaac. And uh, we've put in for modifications to that patent as well. We're still waiting on some feedback from that. I think that's cool. The sand boil generator is another cool thing at Erdic. You just think about all the different technologies that they have that you would have never even imagined. I mean, I would have never thought there was such a thing as a sand boil generator. Yeah. Tell us more about that. So that came actually from the idea of this filter. And they said, okay, well, we have to figure out a way to test this. Well, you can go out in the field sometimes, but sand boils are unpredictable. You don't know when you're going to find them necessarily. You have to have a high water event. So we needed a consistent way to test them as well as a way to measure the gradient within the system. So we all sat down and put our heads together and came up with this design essentially where we have a continuous flow of water that then picks up sand. It allows it to boil up and actually create a cone feature that you would see just with a normal sand boil and allows us then to place the filter inside and test it. And then we have what are called manometers 
basically that measure the water level at different locations throughout the system. And so when we place the filter inside, we can actually see those manometers change. We can see the gradient change within the system and reduce. So we're able to get positive feedback very quickly so that we know that we have a positive result. You mentioned the unpredictability of you know, when there's going to be an event to be able to test it in the field. Yes. Have y'all had much success with field testing or how is that going? Um, Yeah, unfortunately. So we've sent these out to five districts, basically up and down the Mississippi River, because that is once again, an area where we do see a lot of these boils, but we've actually had some pretty dry seasons. Even we were hoping this year with the uh, snowpack that we would actually get a little bit more. Um, Of course, we never hope for flooding. (laughs) Right, right, right. But uh, we do hope for good testing. Sure. And unfortunately, we haven't really seen that, but we do have spare filters here at the facility as well. And if we're notified of an area that is seeing active boils that would like for us to come out and do testing, we're prepared to do that as well. We're making sure we're going to get that data eventually, but you know, once again, we cannot hope for flooding. (laughs) Yeah, sure. How long has this process been going on from the initial idea? Yeah. So the initial patent was submitted back in 2019. I believe the initial idea kind of came up in late 2017, early 2018. The finalized designs basically for the current prototype, those were finished around 2020, 2021. The kits were shipped out in 2022. And we're currently just waiting that data back to see What lessons have you all learned just from doing it in the lab and and on the generator? Yeah, so a lot of the tests that we were able to conduct really kind of taught us, okay, what type of filter material do we really want? Because you can have clogging if you're not careful. What size gravel actually works whenever you're placing it inside? Luckily, there's a large variability with that. You just don't want to go too fine. That's why we use a peak gravel. It's pretty universal. Most people can get their hands on it if they do need more. Little things like trying to make sure the design stays simple enough that if modifications do need to be made in the field, that it can be done. Because we don't want to create something that's so complicated that if something breaks, oh, it's completely useless now. You know, we want to make sure it's something that this can be a permanent staple at a district. It is reusable, which is another really nice feature of it because obviously sandbags are not. So we wanted to try to simplify the design, but also make it as effective as possible. And luckily the the generator was able to help us with that. We have tested both sands that are commonly found in Louisiana and sands that are commonly found here in Mississippi. So we've seen very positive results with that. But yeah, until it's run in the field, you always have question marks. Sure. I've given a data sheet out to all the districts that we have sent these to. And part of that is saying, hey, do you think there's something here that you guys might want, you know, attached to it that would be helpful in the field? Is there a way to better install it in the field? And we've gotten, at least just talking to the districts in general, they've come up with a couple of things that are just like, oh, maybe do these markings with paint or something or do these with, you know, simple things like that, that it might help the design last more long term. Because obviously it's it's a prototype. Yeah, that's right. Sure, so, sure. Mm-hmm. so learning as you go, and we'll continue to learn more as, yes. as it gets more field tested. Too. Exactly. Because we want to make sure the people who are actually implementing it have a good experience with it as well. Because we can design it for the lab all we want. How it works in the field, that's our main key. Yeah, sure. How does this build on Arctic's long history in managing the Mississippi River and its levees? Arctic, I mean, it was originally founded as the Waterways Experimentation Station, and it was founded around the idea of our waterways protecting them, protecting the lands behind them. So to me, it's just an extension of why Arctic's here in the first place. How do we protect our nation's waterways? How do we protect the property that's behind them? How do we protect life loss? And this is just a continuation on that. So we've developed really good standards of practice. Our districts are very good at that all up and down the Mississippi. 
I mean, all over the U.S. Our right, districts are very right. good, but just specifically whenever it comes to internal erosion that I'm obviously thinking about the area that I see it the most. Sure. It's where that particular problem happens the most. Yeah. And if there is anybody, any districts that do have this issue as well that would like to contact me, I'm sure my information will be available. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have that your email address in the show notes. Yes. So definitely let me know if anybody else has boils that they would like me to look at. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a continuation on that, the history that we were built off of. And Urtic has grown a lot. We do a lot of work here that obviously is not directly related back to our nation's waterways. But it is kind of nice that this little piece is still there and it's still going and we're still determined to make our systems as safe as possible. Yeah, sure. I mean, almost 100 years of research yes. on starting Mississippi River and, and like you said, waterways. What about partners? Are, are there any partners you all are working with for this effort? Yes. Bryant Robbins works over, uh, he's worked with the RMC. RMC is uh, Risk the, Management Center, sure. yes. That's Corps of Engineers Risk Management Center. Yes, it is. And of course, we work with all the districts as well. We're collaborating with some of them on this particular project. That's kind of our main partnerships right now. Uh, historically, this project has also done some work with Delteris over in the Netherlands. So we've, we've got some pretty good connections. Sure. Can you talk a little bit about your background and how you came to be involved in this? My background, I got a bachelor's in geology and geophysics from uh, Missouri University of Science Technology and master's in engineering science at Ole Miss. And I interviewed down in Urtic. Next thing I knew, I was down here working. And one of the very first things they put me on was our civil works program and specifically internal erosion. So I initially started working on the lab experiments. I run the majority of our flume experiments back in the lab. And this was a natural progression of that, where this was another chunk of that project, and it eventually did get passed to me. So what's next? Again, you've sent it to five districts. They've got it to field test it. Got additional ones here, but where does it stand and, and what lies ahead? Once we get some good data back from the field, our plan is basically then to move it into where this particular filter is designed for small to medium-sized boils at present. So we'll move in towards manufacturing those most likely and then scaling that design up for the larger boils. Because if the technology proves to work in the field, that is the key, is figuring out, okay, we've got it to work. We can use the same technology for those larger size boils. Once again, lightweight, easy to install. Mm -hmm. It may have to be something that's a little bit bigger that two people install. We've already got some ideas for the designs for that, but that would be that next step, sure. is increasing the size of it, increasing the scale of it for those larger size boils. And then, of course, it can move on to more manufacturing production. And that gets out of my lab, obviously, right, a little bit right. more onto your tech transfer side. But we'll get that out to the people that need them. Sure. Talking about people that need them. I mean, there are specific locations you're looking at. Obviously, the Mississippi River, we've talked about. Mm -hmm. That's where a lot of this particular issue, sand boils, internal erosion, I guess, are more prevalent on the Mississippi River system than they are elsewhere. Are there also other kind of locations where you see it happen a lot? Yes, there are other locations that boils do exist. We would basically be trying to get this out to any of the districts that do have boils as an issue. In addition to that, we see that most likely a lot of the uh, state emergency management systems in any state that does see these boils would likely very much want to have a stock of these on hand as well. So that's what we're kind of looking at in terms of where these would be going to is basically any location that does see that. But it's highly dependent, obviously, on the, the geology. And I'm more familiar with our Mississippi, sure, you know, sure, area than sure. anything else. But like you said, if someone's listening to this yes, and has a problem yes. with it, they can, again, find your email address in the show notes. And, Definitely and let me know. I'd be happy to send a kit or um, we can work on a way to be able to get to a location to uh, do some testing. 
Samantha, what about beyond the Corps of Engineers? Is there some broader applicability that you are looking at as well? Yeah, obviously state risk management or state emergency response units we're thinking about. And we're also thinking about internationally because boils are not something that only exists here within the U.S. There's a lot of other locations that might need technology similar to this. That's something that we'll look into once we get those field tests back. But yeah, we are definitely always keeping our eyes open for places where this could be used. Everyone recognizes levy failures and how significant that can be. So to be able to take this technology to take a process right now that's taking several people, half a day, hundreds of sandbags, and be able to do it in 15 minutes with one piece of technology. I mean, awesome. The work you guys are doing. So, you know, thanks for for all y'all's efforts and and thanks for joining us to talk about it. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun being able to talk to both of you and always excited to talk about the technologies that we have here at Erdic. Great. And again, remind listeners, if you have any more questions for Samantha, you can find her email address in the show notes and uh, reach out to her. U.S. Army Corps of Engineers manages more than 13,500 miles of levees. During high-water events, its employees must rapidly respond to dozens of sand boils that suddenly pop open near strained levees. Erdic's sand boil filter kits provide an easier, safer, and less expensive solution. These kits are 47 times faster and 6.7 times cheaper than traditional sandbag methods for fighting medium-sized sand boils. In unlike sandbags, the filters are reusable, making them 114 times cheaper than sandbagging after the first use. It takes one person about 15 minutes to install a sand boil filter compared to a team of people in hundreds of sandbags. This means personnel can quickly get themselves out of danger and can more effectively alleviate multiple sand boils in less time, providing greater protection to our nation's critical levee systems and the lives and livelihoods they defend. The Power of Erdic podcast is a production of the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center. Visit powerofurticpodcast.org for more resources. You can also contact us at powerofurticpodcast at usace.army.mil. We'll see you next time.